Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery with your hosts Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren. It's Mr. Joe Goldberg today. So, and it's not just thriller, it's his other specialty, disinformation. Disinformation. Is that my real name? Yes. Yes. It's a it's my Pays the doesn't even pay the bills, but I love the t- teaching about it. <laughs> Basically, it's a community college. You pretty much do it for free. Yeah, the love of disinformation is why I teach. Yeah, the, the love of everything. disinformation. Yes, miss. But I'm miss. I'm excited about our guest today because I got I want to learn some stuff and take some notes and steal them to come speak to my class online. You sound even smarter in class. <laughs> is that possible? <laughs> yes. No. Everybody worships the ground you walk on. Uh, I don't see that behind me. I need to turn around someday. No, don't. Don't. It'll <laughs> go to your head, and then you'll never be able to do your job. Right? I'll trip over them. I'll trip over yeah. them. <laughs> Both of them. <laughs> <laughs> two. I'm excited. I was doubled this last year. It's yeah. two animals. <laughs> yeah, I'll take birds. Give me a, give me a, uh, let's see, a blue jay and a cardinal. That's what I'll do. These are pretty blue and red. Yeah, yeah, like like American politics. Yeah, like a squirrel. Anyway, yeah. Now, okay, so we've got a we've got a man here who's written quite a few books, but his uh, one book that caught my eye on on the uh, social media platforms, as we call it, uh, is called uh, "On Disinformation," and it's how to fight for truth and protect. Democracy. So, Mr. Lee McIntyre, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, Lee, um, this is a, I know because I've, I've dealt in this subject and we've been on the air 12, 13, coming on 13 years. And I know um, one of our co hosts for five or six years used to do a segment 
a lot about this, and especially over the 16 election and Hillary Clinton and eating babies and all that sort of stuff. So we went through all that, and we gained quite a few um, real, um, how do you call um unhappy people and that used to complain all the time and send us a lot of stuff, a lot of hate mail. And it was pretty, pretty, pretty wicked, actually, how bad it got. And I've even had Tucker Carlson come after me. Congratulations. And yeah, that, that's what, you know, people take that either way. Either they're real happy and you should wear a badge and there's other ones going, oh, you know, and he's, he's great. And it's like, oh, God. But anyway, um, the reason I'm talking about this is why do you take on this subject? Well, I, I am a philosopher by training and a researcher in the philosophy of science. And for many years, I was happily doing my scholarly research and writing articles and books for, you know, my 20 closest friends. And then the world caught up because I started to be interested in the question of science denial, the people who think that evolution isn't true, that uh, vaccine, that the MMR vaccine causes autism, that the earth is flat. And, you know, as somebody who studied science, uh, somebody who, you know, thought a lot about, you know, why science was as great as it is, uh, it sort of offended me that there were science deniers in the world, and I wanted to think about how to push back against them. So I wrote about that for a while and made some progress, I think, in understanding, you know, what science denial is. And then all of a sudden, with, you know, the political turn uh, toward attacking not just science, but facts and reality and truth, that happened around 2016 for no particular reason, I started to want to write about politics. Um, that is, I wanted to still write about, you know, truth and belief and reason, but understanding that what was under threat now was not just science, but democracy itself. And so I wrote a book in uh, that came out in 2018 called Post-Truth, and that was really the beginning of this. You know, I had, I had been writing books for the public, uh, you know, what they call public philosophy before that. But that was really when the light bulb went on for me because I started, I defined post-truth as the political subordination of reality. And as a philosopher, that's just catnip. I mean, that's just a very interesting idea. What would it mean to try to subvert reality? Because, you know, you didn't want something to be true. Therefore, you were going to pretend that it wasn't true and try to convince other people that it wasn't true. And how did that work? And I spent a long time thinking about that and thinking about that that was following really the same blueprint that the science deniers had been following. It's just that now their target was, you know, were other empirical topics like, you know, who won the election and whether crime was going up or down. And then toward what I thought was going to be the end of my engagement with that question, I had an idea that I really hadn't written about before which is that I spent so much time thinking about denial and how you push back against deniers. And I hadn't really spent a lot of time thinking about how they got that way. And then one day it came to me. Deniers are not born, they're created. They are, and they're created by disinformation. They're created by people with an agenda who want and, and profit and thrive by victimizing other people into believing falsehoods. And that's why I wrote my new book on disinformation, because to me that was the final piece in the puzzle. That was the thing that explained uh, why it's so hard to convince somebody to get over their mistaken 
you know, denialist beliefs. And it's because they're, they're really, they don't just believe something that's false. They've been taught to distrust anybody on the other side. It's us versus them. Uh, you know, I'm telling you the truth, they're not. And it's very hard to break through because then belief becomes a matter of identity, political identity in this particular case. And so that's just a whole new ball game for me, and I wanted to write a new book on that. Well, well, what makes the, um, let's say, the, the American audience so naive that they could become so, I, I don't want to say close-minded, but so one-sided, so ev everything else, you know, it's, it's just one thought. Everything's false except for what they're telling you. Every human being has cognitive bias. Uh, Kahneman and Tversky did work years back showing that there are about 100 different uh, cognitive biases. Uh, you know, some of the famous ones that people already know about, you know, confirmation bias. You think that something's true and you go out looking for evidence to back up, you know, what you already believe. But, the, you know, there are a bunch of other ones. And the truth of the matter is that really any of us can be manipulated in this way if we're subjected to the right kind of disinformation. And so, you know, you'll notice, for instance, with science denial, science you know, people use the term science to know. There's really no such thing. There, there are very few people who deny all science. You know, maybe Ted Kaczynski, right? But, <laughs> you know, they're, they're what I call cafeteria skeptics. They pick out something, right? They think the earth is flat, but they'll fly on a plane. They think that, um, you know, the, the vaccines are dangerous, but if they get cancer, they'll get chemotherapy. I mean, so they're selective. They go through the buffet line and they choose what's what. How do they know what to choose? It's because they're radicalized around certain topics, and those are the topics that they're disinformed about by somebody who has, you know, something to, to gain. So I don't think that it's that Americans are particularly susceptible. I think it's that we're particularly targeted. Uh, one of the um, epiphanies that I had in doing this research is to realize we are in an information war with Russia and have been for the last 20 years. Um, and, you know, there's a terrific article in the New York Times in 2019 called Putin's Long War Against American Science. Putin and his intelligence service have been behind, you know, a lot of the disinformation and denial in this country about vaccines, about GMOs, you know, uh, just he, he loves to uh, weigh in on the health matters because it divides us and it undermines our trust in one of our treasured institutions, science. But they also, uh, of course, have disinformation about other things, uh, political topics, uh, you know, all the, the hot-button things that, that we're interested in. So, you know, the United States audience is targeted by Iran, by Russia, by China. And then, you know, that foreign disinformation uh, is because it's intended to find the existing fissures in American politics, uh, gets picked up by our partisan media, where, you know, once it, and once it's laundered through that domestic filter, it's very hard for our, you know, cyber warriors to fight back against it because the Constitution doesn't really allow them to fight domestic disinformation. So, you know, we have, there are a confluence of circumstances that I think have made it particularly hard for Americans, but I don't think it's that we're more gullible. I think it's that we're, you know, we're, we're just getting more disinformation than other places. But I also have to say that um, if you look at what Trump accomplished, I think that he really ran the first 
successful domestic disinformation campaign, you know, nationwide in the history of the United States. You talk to people who live in totalitarian dictatorships, they know this. They understand what it means, you know, to propaganda and disinformation. I mean, you, you, they could read my book. They wouldn't probably learn anything. They already know how it works. But in the, you know, the American system, maybe because we have a free press, uh, that's, you know, done us well, but is less good now with, you know, with social media influence and, you know, other factors. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's fallen by the wayside a little bit, but at least in part, it's because we're targeted more. Well, let me, let me stick with that. Lee, I, I just got done with my class was actually social media and politics. Mm -hmm. What is, has it been made worse with the, explosion of social media what is the impact of social media on this entire process because this information yeah. this information has been around for 2000 yeah. years uh, absolutely yeah why um, now it, it, social media is the accelerant uh, i mean it, the pipe uh, the, the the structure of my book is i break it i have actually chapters called the the creators that is the creators of disinformation the amplifiers and the believers and without amplification disinformation is ineffective and even useless. With amplification, it can reach, you know, to the four corners. It used to be that people who were disinformers had a tough time reaching their audience. Now they don't. Uh, and it's not just because they can broadcast it to a larger audience. You know, now, you know, that you don't have the guy with the tinfoil hat out on the corner handing out a mimeograph sheet. You've got somebody with, with a website uh, and a you know a microphone, um, it, but it's not just the broadcast; it's the narrowcast, which is to say, look at some of the marketing tools that are available on Facebook. You can now micro-target your audience for whatever you want to sell them. You want to sell them sneakers and cosmetics. You want to sell them um, terrorism. You know, you want to radicalize them to become a you know a member of a terrorist group, or you want them to. You know, believe that the uh, 2020 election was stolen. It's the same set of tools. It's those marketing tools on Facebook that allow micro-targeting to your audience because they know you pretty well through your clicks. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, they're, they're reflecting back a lot that you already want to believe is true, and that's a very powerful cognitive bias. If they can find what you want to hear and then give it to you, even if it's false, you're more likely to want to believe it. Well, let me hit you with some common terms and see how they play into this. Those terms are filter bubbles and echo chambers. How do they play into this? Are they, are they real? Yeah, yeah. Uh, echo chamber is, I mean, some people call that a, a, a silo, but I, I guess echo chamber is a little bit kind of different uh, uh, definition where you just stop listening to people that you don't already agree with. And, I mean, in some ways that's voluntary, and so, you know, shame on the people who are, who are doing it. But remember that if, if one goal of, the goal of disinformation is not just to get you to believe a falsehood. It's to hate the person who is on the other side, to hate the person who's disagreeing with you, and to distrust that person. And so, in some ways, I see the fundamental problem here as being not about facts, but about trust. I've often said that science deniers don't have a fact deficit, they have a trust deficit. And, you know, think about how many things that you believe that you've actually verified firsthand. 
not everything, not even most things, right? But you trust science. You know, you trust your mechanic. You know, you, you trust your plumber. And so you, you expect things to work a certain way. But imagine being radicalized to the point where you thought that everybody was lying to you except this one, you know, outlet who, you know, told you that everybody else was lying to you. So I, I think that can be a very dangerous thing, especially when it's online. As I'm, a, I'm a big advocate of face-to-face -face conversation because in face-to-face -face conversation, it tends to uh, create trust. And it's it's much easier to, to uh, distrust somebody if all you see is their screen name, you know, in the comments at the bottom of a Washington Post article, you know, something like that. I mean, people can be causing, uh, um, they, they fight more uh, about that. Um, you're going to have to define for me, and, and I, I know that this is ridiculous because I'm a disinformation researcher, but the, I, the, the term, how are you using the term filter bubble? Well, that's my teaching. That's a good question because it's, it's under some variants of what it really means. I would say it is selecting on your pre-selecting yourself and having them the the algorithms send you information of that they think you're interested in okay and keep the other stuff away that and then create like, so so a filter so think of a filter bubble then as just the um the digital equivalent of what we were just talking about right yes. from from the, the the digital point of view rather than the human point of view like those algorithms on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter are tweaked for engagement. Um, they're doing less content moderation now, it seems to me, uh, than they used to. Um, and, you know, why? Well, because engagement is their business model. Engagement, you know, keeps people on the platform. It, it sells. Money. And so, yeah. And so, I mean, even if the social media companies are you know, unwitting amplifiers of disinformation, they are nonetheless accomplices because they are helping to filter the message that you're getting. Um, they're helping to, uh, you know, shape and select the place that you get your news, which makes it easier, to, you know, to be in one of those silos. It's the it's the bubble part that I never really understood about the definition of, you know, filter bubble. Um but, you know wh where that comes into it, but I mean, yes, I think that's a, that's a real thing because you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you're missing, and the the particularly dangerous thing with uh, with the shaping of the message that you get on social media is, I mean, you literally don't know what they're not sending you. You know, I I remember reading one time, I, I forget where they said. You know, after 20 clicks, the platform knows you better than your spouse. So, I mean, they know who you are. And I was talking about it before with the micro-targeting, right? They are, they are sending you exactly what you, what you want to hear. So you're more likely to believe it and you're missing other things. Compare that to something like science, where scientists are constantly challenging one another's beliefs and their own beliefs by evidence saying, well, you know, I want to believe this is true, but is it true? We'd better run an experiment. We'd better find out. And in the competitive atmosphere of science, they're constantly challenging one another on, you know, whether what they're saying is true. And there's no greater delight a scientist takes than in, you know, showing that somebody else's theory is false. I guess maybe think, hoping that their theory is true. So how is it that we can address this sort of issue? Um, 
like you, you know, the book, How to Fight for Truth. So how is it that we fight? Like, what are the particular steps we need to do? If someone doesn't trust me, I can say, well, the vaccine's fine. But how how is it that we can get them to listen, I guess? I think there are two prongs in this. I wrote an earlier book called How to Talk to a Science Denier, where I, I actually went to a Flat Earth convention and tried to talk to them, not about what they believe, but why they believe it. And I've talked to climate deniers and, you know, anti-vaccine folks, et cetera. And there is a technique, there is a method uh, that I didn't invent, but it is uh, helped along by face-to-face, calm, patient, respectful conversation. Um, and you, you can, you know, read about this method uh, in a uh, an article in uh, Nature Human Behavior from 20, 2019 by Cornelia Bates and Philip Schmid. And it, it works. I mean, there's a statistically significant number of cases that it works in. But the problem is that it doesn't work in enough cases. that uh, And, you know, it's, what do they say? It's not scalable, right? Um, so if the solution of the disinformation problem is, well, we've got to strap in and go out and debunk all of this face-to-face, one one by one, we're going to lose. I mean, that's part of the problem. You know, that's salvaging the people who are already sick, but we're going to lose. Um, the So there's another aspect to fighting this, which I now realize is even more important, which is that we've got to cut off the amplification. Um, now, how do you do that? How do you convince... You can't convince the disinformers to stop creating disinformation because why would they? It's in their best interest. Maybe you can't convince um, Twitter and Facebook to change, you know, their algorithms because why would they? It's in their best interest to leave it alone. Can we convince Congress to regulate them? You know, to demand that they change those, you know, those way that they're amplifying it, those algorithms, or can we at least demand some sort of transparency? So far, Congress has shown no appetite for, you know, actually doing this. So here we are with this existential threat to democracy, not just the United States, but around the world. And there's no cavalry coming to save us. And I wanted to write my book because my worry was that another goal of disinformation is not just to get you to believe a falsehood and to hate the person either side. It's to make you feel helpless. But you're not helpless. And I'm have begun to think that the only way we're going to solve this is through a grassroots revolution of people who wake up to the disinformation threat and, you know, begin to push on Congress, on the social media companies, on journalists to do a better job. Um, We're not helpless. In the book, the last chapter are 10 practical steps that anybody can take to fight disinformation. And if we have enough people doing these things, like writing to the advertisers for the cable companies that, you know, are misreporting or, you know, are simply uh, misidentifying disinformation, calling it misinformation, which is my pet peeve, we can probably make a difference. There's not a lot of time before the 2024 election. And I, you know, I wrote this book geared toward the 2024 election because I think that that's the kind of maximum peril for democracy. But I do feel at least somewhat optimistic that once people know we're in a disinformation war, then there's something we can do about it. My, I'll just expand for a second on my pet peeve. Yeah. My pet peeve is, which, which of course, um, 
journalists love to use the word misinformation. Misinformation is an accident, but disinformation is a lie. And if you report on the problem as misinformation when it's really disinformation, then it makes people feel helpless. It's like a, a hurricane. You know, put your head down, take shelter. There's nothing you can do. But if the model is not a natural disaster, if the model is war, then there is something we can do. We can fight back. I mean, there are nameable individuals who are creating and amplifying disinformation. And you know what? There aren't that many of them. Um, the Center for Countering Digital Hate in 2019 found that 65% of the anti-vax propaganda on Twitter was due to 12 people. You know, can we please get those 12 people deplatformed? What would that take? How could we do that? How can we push back? I think that individual grassroots action is the key. So is that grassroots action there to, to go after the individuals and pressure the social media platforms and pressure government regulators, like Section 230 type of people? Yes, that's part of it, and I discuss all those things in the book. Um, one really wicked uh, way to do it is to go after their advertisers or donors. I mean, pe people write angry letters to CNN or Fox. How many people write to the advertisers on the program that they just saw where they didn't like what they saw? How many letters would it take for that advertiser to say, uh-oh, we just got five letters about disinformation uh, from the same program. We better talk to the producer. Um, another really terrific idea, this wasn't my idea, this is due to uh, Joan Donovan, who's a disinformation researcher, who's one of my new colleagues at BU, Boston University. Um, she points out that the Internet companies by themselves, you can complain to them and they may or may not, not change what they do. But how many people write to PayPal? How many people... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. 
For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Right to Akamai. You know, how many, how many people write to the hosting services and the financial services that Twitter and Facebook and YouTube depend on and would be powerless without. I mean, we could write to them, too. We could pressure them. Individual grassroots action can be quite effective if enough people do it. I mean, we can, we can push back. We just have to push back in the right way. You know, you write a letter to Elon Musk, it's probably not going to do any good. But if you write a letter to his advertisers, it might. Just look at the problems that Musk had with his advertisers not so long ago, and you realize that is a powerful weapon. But Lee, aren't you trying to cancel those advertisers? <laughs> no, I love the advertisers. I just want to get them to uh, um, be selective about where they're advertising their, uh, uh, their, their goods. I mean, wouldn't they like to know that their audience is offended? You know, if they're trying to sell me dish soap, wouldn't they like to know that the you know the audience watching that particular show, you know, that five percent of them are offended, uh, and you know, likely to turn it off because they don't like what the host is saying about because they're making a confusion between mis and disinformation. I mean, that would be interesting to them. I think. I told you it was wicked, yeah. right? But it is perfectly within bounds to write to an advertiser. Well, it's been done before. Yeah. You know they. And um, Tucker Carlson had advertiser problems, and he did. A lot of shows have some advertiser problems. You know, if you if you see, like, was it was it uh, Jimmy John's or whatever the you know the CEO is doing this, and I'm not going to go to that place anymore, type of thing, because he's a big game hunter, whatever it was. I'll tell you who hates controversy: marketers. They they Absolutely. they just don't want it. I mean they 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 will tell you we're not we're not political. We're not red or blue. We don't want to be in that game. We just want to sell our product. You know, if they get angry letters from what they don't feel like is half of America saying, well, I'm not going to, I'm going to boycott your product because you're advertising on so-and-so show that, you know, that could be, that could be effective. What do you, what about the press? You mentioned that earlier and they, they're sort of up against social media, social media, News, as we say, has, has taken a lot of the market. And so I think a lot of the uh, national press, for sure, CNN, Fox, and all that, mm. sort of have to take a stand, and they sort of take a side, and they run with it. Mm. But isn't that making things worse? Uh, yes. Um, the, the, the problem, I mean, look, Fox is in a category all by itself. Right. We, we understand from the depositions uh, it didn't go all the way to trial, as we know, but we understand from the depositions that came out in the, uh, uh, you know, in in the court case, the Dominion court case, that yes, provably they have hosts on Fox 
who say things that they know are a lie. So I'm going to put that to the side. Yes, that's bad. <laughs> we understand that. <laughs> um, what about CNN and MSNBC? So don't they have a point of view? Don't they have, you know, their own interests? Well, I mean, in a way, yes, all journalists have interests. They, you know, they don't want to be accused of political bias. They, you know, so there's this tendency for them to want to tell both sides of the story, even when there really isn't another side of the story. I mean, that's the, the poor man's way of achieving balance, right, to show that they're not biased, which means that they keep platforming the liars. They keep having the liars on their program to, you know, to show that they're not biased, which means that they're amplifying uh, mistakes and, and lies. And I mean, look, they used to do it more than they do now for science deniers. You know, you used to see these split screen debates about climate change where they, you know, have some uh, National Academy of Science person on one side and then some guy with a website on the other and let him duke it out and give him equal time. They don't tend to do that anymore because there really aren't two sides on some of these questions. Now, when it's identified as a political question, they think, oh, well, no, that's off limits. But what happens when facts are politicized? You know, should there there is a there. There is a true and false answer to whether the crime rate is going up. You know, the, uni the Uniform Crime Report comes out of the FBI. They track crime. So if you want to report on whether the you know, murder rate is going up or down, that's a very reliable source. But now suppose that issue has been politicized, and so you have on a Democrat and a Republican, and it's you know in one of their interests for the crime rate to be going up and another one to say that it's going down that's not the right way to report on the issue because then you you know you you're just letting you you you're making it seem as if there's uh doubt on a question in which there you know there's actually reliable uh, data so i you know i'm really of two minds i mean i write a lot about the media uh, in general and uh, in particular in this book because i i, I want them to do better i want them first to recognize that there's such a thing as disinformation. It is not all misinformation. Sometimes it's intentional. You know, th there's somebody behind it. There's money behind it. And they need to name names. Another thing that I wish they would do is stop booking liars. Uh, I, I can't remember who said it. It wasn't me, but I read this recently, and I thought it was great. It said, how do you, how do you tell both sides of a lie? I mean, in, in its most recent uh, reinvention, uh, CNN said, you know, well, we're going to stop being so partisan. We're going to start, you know, taking it more down the middle and telling both sides. But how do you tell both sides of a lie? You, you really, you really can't. You know, should you book somebody on your program who you know is just shilling for a point of view that they know is false because it serves their political interest? That's, that's the problem. So media can do better and, you know, kind of deserves the criticism that they get. Um, you know, on this issue. The problem is that they're now up against such competition from social media and get so much undeserved criticism um, that it is, uh, it, it, it's hard. But, um, you know, I, I mean, I have my favorites. I have my people that I regularly watch and the ones that I, that I won't. Um, the ones that I watch tend to be ones who are a little careful, uh, you know, to make sure that they're championing uh, truth and evidence and, and, you know, not just keeping eyes glued to the set. Well, you've used the word, this word several times. I'm going to ask a question on it, which is truth, right? Yeah. Both sides of a lie. Yeah. Like the first week in my class is only about 
what is truth? How do you prove truth nowadays if it's not a, a statistic, scientific method or statistic you can count? I know that's true because of that. Yeah. How do you prove that? You can't prove it even in science. That's the problem. When, when, you've got, uh, when you've got a factual issue, you can gather evidence to show that a theory is false, and you can gather positive evidence to show that a theory is good and supported by the evidence. But no matter how much evidence you gather, you can never show that that theory is absolutely certain to be true. And that's where people find that crack, that fissure, so that they can say, aha, so there is some doubt. So, you know, there is some wiggle room here. I mean, what is truth? Don't get me started. I'm a philosopher. But, uh -huh. you know, I mean, look, philosophers disagree about what truth is, about the appropriate theory of truth. You know, there are, I'm sure you know because you teach it, that there's the correspondence theory, the coherence theory, pragmatist theories, you know, normative theories, all these different theories of truth. One thing I think that most philosophers agree on is that truth matters. Truth is important. Um, I mean, not everybody believes that. I, I think, you know, I have the most trouble arguing against relativists uh, in my ethics class that I teach, because if you think that all truth is relative, well, you know, how do you even have an ethics? I, I, think, it is, I think it is important to start from the point of view that, at least on empirical topics, there is such a thing as truth, and that we should, it, it repays our effort to try to know it. Even if we can't be certain, it's important to try to know it. And it's certainly important not to take steps that erode knowledge or to pretend that we know less than we do. You know, it, it's these folks who come in and, you know, pretend that there's doubt where there is none that are the ones that drive me crazy. You know, going back to the 1950s when the tobacco companies, you know, were worried that a study was going to come out to show that there was a causal link between smoking and lung cancer. Well, they ginned up as much doubt as they possibly could. They hired a public relations expert to advise them. He said, fight the science. And they did for 40 years while people smoked and died. So, you know, that that's, that's obviously what we want to avoid, right? So is there a truth about whether smoking causes lung cancer? Yes, there is. Did the scientists definitively certainty, you know, 100% certainty prove that smoking causes lung cancer? No, they didn't because they can't, with 100% certainty, prove anything due to a technical issue in uh, philosophy of science called the problem of induction. Is it, is it good to believe a theory that has better evidence over one that has worse evidence? Yes, and that's where science lives. You know, it, it is possible to marshal evidence, to have greater warrant. Some theories are more likely to be true than others based on you know, their fit with the evidence. And those are the ones that, you know, we should believe in, while always understanding that any theory could be disproven by, you know, some future crucial experiment. That doesn't mean that the flat earthers are right. You know, they'll come in and say, oh, so you're saying there's a chance. You're saying I could be right. Not really. Um, it, you know, it, it's you don't want to be that guy that hangs on to the you know, quadrillion to one shot. That's just not rational. Yeah, I had I had Mark Sargent on for two hours. Oh boy, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'll tell you, I needed yeah, a cocktail. I met him. That I met him. Yeah, so you, there you go. Um, you know, and and the thing is, but when you have people like him, he he's I don't know if it it what 
people are attracted if there's if there's a charisma it's almost like um Alex Jones right yeah. they they just there's this huge following that they put on a show you know like Alex ripping his shirt off and jumping up and down and screaming on the mic and and he gets more subscribers than people buying his product he even loses in the lawsuits but he still gets subscribers and he still has followers so even when it's proven that he lied and even if he admits it in court yeah i i lied about that i you know his people are still following him yes and the thing that i've never figured out is why someone would want to believe that the earth is flat what's the advantage now i went to like i said i went to the flat earth international conference come to think of it I'm not sure Mark Sargent was at the one that I that I went to. I think it was somebody else that I was thinking of. It must be because Mark Sargent wears a shirt that says "I am Mark Sargent." Yeah. <laughs> so I would I would have known. Uh, I, I think it was him. So it, it, I don't, maybe it was not him that I, I was thinking of that I, I was speaking to there. You know, they are they are committed, as you know, if you had them on on your show. Yeah. Um, they're not joking around. They're not just. It's not just trolling. You know, ha ha. They really believe this. I can never figure out who's behind it. You know, if there's disinformation behind it, you know, what's at stake? Nobody seems to be getting rich. There's no political power to it. I don't quite understand it. But I think I do understand a little bit more than I used to that, number one, they're conspiracy theorists, uh, which means that they don't tend to trust the you know, establishment to tell them the truth. And almost every one of them that I spoke with, I'm going to say virtually everyone that I spoke with, had some story about something that happened in their life when they lost their faith in other people to tell them the truth. Sometimes it was a traumatic experience for them, you know, or, or a collective one like 9-11. Sometimes it was a divorce. Sometimes it was a health uh, a challenge that they started to question, you know, something, and then they couldn't stop. It just kind of metastasized from there until it got to flat earth. From their point of view, they are... Neo in the Matrix. They are the elite. They're the people who know the answer. And everyone else is either liars or sheep. And their job is to wake up as many sheep as they can. So it is It is a weird world. Um, I, I believe that most denial is not like that. Because most denial, you know, if you think about climate denial or vaccine denial, it's pretty easy to figure out who's behind that, who's making a buck, who's profiting either politically or, or economically from the lies that they're telling. Well, let me ask you a question. This might be in the political sphere, but it could be for anybody. What has disinformation done to the, the words, the terms, the beliefs, the ideas called shame and hypocrisy? I haven't seen a lot of shame in Washington, D.C. in a long time. <laughs> well, that's the question. Yeah. I mean, it used to be. You remember John Edwards? You're right. Oh, yes. You know, it, it used to be that when you told a lie and you got caught red-handed, you were ashamed. And you kind of maybe lost your place in line and even disappeared from politics. Maybe even issued an apology. I don't see that happening anymore. People double down on their lie and and just, you know, bull forward. And, I mean, hypocrisy, yes, that's, uh, you know, that's a growth stock in Washington, D.C. I just, the, the, the trouble... I think this is the root of it, if I, if I can speculate for a minute. It, it, listen to Vladimir Putin. Listen to Trump, for that matter. They're working from the same playbook here. 
when you try to get them, you know, pinned in a corner about who's responsible for something, you know, wh- wh- who's to blame, they they will, you know, they'll lie. Uh, there's a technique in disinformation called the fire hose of falsehood, where you know they just tell one lie after another, or they'll use the other technique. What about isn't? You know, well, what about this? What about the, you know to try to distract? And the point is this: if you can undermine the idea that there even is a truth, then there's no such thing as blame or accountability. So I mean, the the holy grail for the disinformer is to get you to believe the falsehood that they're selling. But if they can't do that, it's almost as effective to get you to give up on the idea that there is such a thing as truth. Think about people who live in totalitarian dictatorships. Some of them know that the government is lying to them. They just don't dare say anything, you know, or they're just kind of, well, you know, they'll get cynical. You know, well, I, you know, we, we live in a regime in which, you know, what the dictator says is, is actually our reality. We have to deal with it, whether it's true or not. They'd never dare say that again. So, you know, the, the problem is, if you give up on the idea of truth, which in some ways is maybe the insidious goal of disinformation after all, to become so cynical that you give up on the idea of truth, then you're easier to manipulate. Then you, you play right into the authoritarian's hands. And then there's no such thing as, uh, as blame or uh, accountability anymore. And I think that we're kind of on the, uh, on the verge of that in the U.S. right now, U.S. politics. I want to read you a quotation I just found on page three of my book from the great Holocaust historian Hannah Arendt. She says this, quote, The ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction, true and false, no longer exists. End quote. That's the person that the totalitarian wants, not just the person they can, they can bamboozle, but the person who's given up. I have to ask, but what's the end game of people like that? Like, you know, there's Power. money. But is, is it really? Because can you really achieve this total world domination, you know, this idea of new world order and, and, and controlling everything and everyone? Is that really possible? Forever? I don't know, but it certainly exists. I mean, it already exists in pockets. Uh, look at the setup that Putin has in Russia or Orban in Hungary, or until recently that Bolsonaro had in Brazil. I mean, ultimately, you'd like to think that people like that lose, that they get kicked out, they get, there's a coup, they get overthrown, you know, that something happens. But for a long time, they can, you know, run their crooked game and, you know, be a dictator or, you know, be an authoritarian or autocrat, whatever you want to call it. I mean, that's the worry, isn't it? Fascism. And fascism... It's not a thing of the past. It's still, you know, around. It it didn't die. It, it hid. And now it's creeping back. Tim Snyder, who I admire so much, wrote a book called On Tyranny, you know, where he makes this uh, uh, claim that, you know, we need to wake up to this threat in the United States because it's the same threat that has been, he's been watching happen. He's another Holocaust historian. Uh, he's been watching that happen in uh, Eastern Europe. He's, I mean, democracy is under threat around the world. So, I mean, yes, it can happen. And and look, um, I, I know that uh, you guys both also have an interest in fiction. Remember 1984? Right. Where that scene in the basement of the Ministry of Love where, you know, Winston finally gets to the ultimate question, what's the point of all this? And it's it's power. It's, what does he say? Uh 
I'm, I'm going to butcher it in, in, but, but it's, you know, the, well, he's, he, he says it's the boot crushing the face over and over again. I mean, that's pretty dark, right? But it, it's the, <laughs> you can't get darker than that. But it is, um, it is power. It, it is the lust for absolute dictatorial power. Well, we have to stop, Joe. Yes, yes, that's at my fingertips. 1984 wasn't fiction, it was a manual. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, it's funny, 1984 has been one of my favorite books, I, maybe my favorite for a long time, one of my favorite books since I was about 14 or 15. And when I wrote my book, Post-Truth, I used quotations from Orwell to, you know, to open most of the chapters. And I kept thinking of 1984 when I was writing on disinformation. And my, my joke was that I always wanted to write a dystopian thriller. I just didn't know it was going to be nonfiction. Yeah, you know? Exactly. Here, here we are. Here we are. And yeah. I, I don't know where it's going to go. What do you I, think? I don't either. You, so what do you think's next? Like where it's really, do you think it comes down to the 24 election? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I don't see how we recover if Trump gets another term. He has already announced his second term agenda and it includes gutting the civil service. Um, you know, I'm sure he will fill all the cabinet positions with people who are loyal to him. He will try to make the IRS and the Department of Justice and maybe even the military, if he could get away with it, you know, personal uh, agents of his personal will. I, I don't see how we survive that, how democracy survives that. Um, now, if, if he doesn't win, is the threat still there? Maybe. I mean, because after Trump, uh, there are his minions. There are all these other people who, you know, the mini Trumps out there. Uh, you know, in the news today, uh, Jim Jordan is the leading candidate for the next Speaker of the House. Um, I I don't know what world we live in in which you know that's a possibility, but you know we we keep edging closer and closer and wondering you know well how much time do we have? Not much. Yeah. There I went dark, didn't I? There that, you that's go. Almost yeah. like I got the, the boot on the face. The boot on the face. Right? And ending with the, the cheery note. Yes. Yeah. How do you like right. that? Yeah. How do you, how Thanks, do you, Johnny Raincloud. How, how, how do you like that? But look, don't let me end on that note because I am actually optimistic about the idea that we are not helpless to fight back against this. There are things that we can do, and the number one thing that we can do. And, and I, you know, I try to say this from the rooftops is that it is impossible to win an information war unless you realize that you're in one and we're in one. And, you know, all of us are foot soldiers or we can be bystanders if we care to be. But I wrote my book because I wanted people to read it. And when they're done, pass it to a friend. I don't want them to put it on a shelf. I want them to, you know, dog ear it, mark it up. Leave it on the bus seat so somebody else finds it. Um, you know, pass it hand to hand because I think I see it as a training manual. I mean, it's a little bit of a weird book for philosopher to write because it's not a scholarly book. It's a it's advocacy. But I think that truth is in danger, and I think that democracy is in danger as a result. And that's why I wanted to write this book. Right. So people get out there and buy it, and then after you're finished reading it, leave it in the bathrooms. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's yeah, it. Ending on, you know, ending on an owl note. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> that's an owl note. That is. 
Well, now, are you doing social media and the whole thing? Do you like readers and people to interact with you? Do you have a website? Um, where do people find yeah. you? Easiest place to find me is my website, leemcintyrebooks.com. That's got links to all of my uh, handles on social media. Uh, I do the best I can on social media. It's hard, hard to keep up and write and do publicity, you know, all at the same time. So, uh, but yes, uh, there's a way to contact me through my website. If people want to uh, write to me, that's uh, uh, perfectly fine, and uh, and I, I welcome it. And if people want to follow me on social media, there you know, I'm on I'm on Twitter and Facebook and a few other things that I don't keep up with as much, but mostly Twitter and Facebook. Right. Well, fantastic. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, and uh, everyone, the book on disinformation. How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy. Our guest is the author of that book, Lee McIntyre. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.